Affirmative, affirmative, it's time for Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network, with me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's king of the geeks, and Tin Dog Lover, of course, who who isn't. If you're new to the show, or you've been travelling with us before, we're still the same irreverent, though always genial, non-gatekeeping show for everybody. Whatever decade or century you started watching, reading, or listening along to the astonishing adventures of the Time Lord, our hero, Doctor Who. That TV series that's uh, come to mean so much more to a huge amount of people, and we'll talk about it all on this show. Any and all opinions are welcome, thoroughly encouraged, and we've been known to have the odd laugh or two along the way. So come and step into our TARDIS and share this journey together here with us on Type 40. And we know the Doctor wouldn't approve at all if we wasted too much time. So let's lead them in now, our other voices, on this edition of the show. Firstly, the original Hunatic and uh, long-time defender of the Doctor's cutest companion. Simon Horton, we're back in your happy place, aren't we? Oh, Dan Hadley, we're back in my very, very, very <laughs> happy place with this. You, you know me <laughs> by now. Yeah. Some of my earliest memories of you, Simon. Let's let's uh, let's just uh, get this established because I think this expression is one that I always associate with you. Some of my earliest memories of you are of defending you, defending in arguments, conversations, debates. Debate is a friendlier word, isn't it? The merits of canine against what you call the canine knockers, in inverted commas. Do you want to explain what a knocker is? <laughs> well, the, the thing is, it's, a canine is one of those kind of Marmite characters in many ways, isn't he? And I think the people that love him absolutely adore him. Whereas there is this kind of... Uh, I think of it as a kind of a nouvelle view of K9, that he's not he's a bit of a cheesy character. There's always this misconception, which you and I, Dan, have allayed several times, uh, about the, that he only came about because of um, R2-D2 in Star Wars, and we've proven that he predates R2-D2. But there yeah. is still this school of thought that just says, oh, yeah, he just came along because that's what all science fiction was doing at the time, was having a cute robot. And K9 is just so much more than that. And and K9 is definitely, um, to me, one of those truly, truly iconic parts of Doctor Who. They're what make Doctor Who what it is, and it would be a lesser mm. show without K9. And the fact that we're still we've still got that legacy of K9 still ongoing to this day proves that the you know the validity of the character and the love that people have for him. As I say, I think if you like canine you absolutely adore him no i would completely agree i think he casts the uh, maybe a short shadow but quite a long one i adore him you clearly do and so does he yeah we've invited uh, another fearless defender of canine aboard and if you've heard our christmas party edition a few weeks ago he was there misbehaving with uh, all of us on that but this is his first time on the podcast proper it's our mate jt Hello, hello, everybody. I'm here to celebrate the tin dog. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And you're a real-life robot dog handler, aren't you? I am, yeah. Um, I, I, I managed, in 2000, I managed to get a um, then marketable one from this planet Earth. And he has been done up um, over the years, uh, and he's better now than ever before. But it's, it's because when I, was, when I was a boy and K9 appeared, I wanted one. <laughs> I wanted a robot dog. I think most of us at that age, I was about seven, I think yeah. most of us wanted a robot dog. So it took me all that time in order to get one. <laughs> and let's just clarify, because this is sort of the pinnacle of canine collectibles, really, isn't it? This planet Earth, what is this planet Earth and what do they do? Are they still, are they still around? 
Um, I'm not sure if they are still around. No, they are still around, definitely. They're still making Daleks, still making Weeping Angels, Cybermen. But no canines, they don't make canine anymore. Yeah, I did. I do remember at the time they were saying that the the, the amount that they made would be one-offs. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not so, too surprised about that. But, you know, tomorrow's another day and you never know what might come along in the future. I'm still yeah. desperate for this Planet Earth K9. I really am. I can't believe I missed out on getting one. I have emailed them on a number of occasions and said, will you please start remaking canines? Yeah. Well, I have to say mine has been upgraded mm-hmm. by a very talented model maker. It did need it. So um, I'd like to thank Richard for all the effort he put into making it far more manageable. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You know, Could it be, though, JT? Off. Could it be that you were using him to sort of write down the shop sign every other day? <laughs> no. Would that invalidate the warranty? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, in the days of a dog license, I think it would have gone across that. <laughs> well, the good news is anybody out there who's listened to this show before will know that I love a pun or two. And I can't think of two better pals get it? Hey. <laughs> to have this particular conversation with, uh, well, three when I count you. Yeah, before we get going, it's just a reminder that each and every edition of this show, past, present and future, is a tap or two away if you know where to look. And there's details coming up about all of that a little later on, as well as a a joining with the matrix of all knowledge. To us, that's the Fandom Podcast Network, to hear about all the other fabulous shows over there. But yeah, let's uh, let's blow the dog whistle now and enjoy Canine's company. Hey! Part of the joy in discovering Doctor Who, discovering, discovering Doctor Who. I think there's some books called Discovering Doctor Who. <laughs> Part of the joy of discovering Doctor Who are the little time eddies of its own nooks and crannies, some mapped, some not, throughout the nearly six decades of Doctor Who history. There've been lots of talk of spinning off this great series from its very earliest days, and none of that came to anything for whatever reason. But if there was one creative, one producer, who was hungry enough and showman enough to make that happen, it was the still new Doctor Who producer, John Nathan Turner, back in 1980. And one character, one focus that had captured the imaginations and and hearts, the way that Simon was talking about earlier on, enough to sort of, uh, to guarantee a project like that, a production like that, any kind of success, then it was the Doctor's robot assistant, K9, as created for the show as a, as a one-off character by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, but becoming hugely successful on the show over several seasons with the Fourth Doctor. But perhaps the wisest choice when making this actually happen, inspired even, was in pairing K9 with Sarah Jane Smith, as played as ever by Elizabeth Sladen, as well as the unmistakable vocal performance of John Leeson returning as K9 himself. In case you've not seen it for a while, or maybe even not at all, here's a reminder of the magic of the uh, pilot episode of K9 and Company, A Girl's Best Friend. Sarah Jane Smith is looking forward to spending a quiet Christmas with her Aunt Lavinia in the sleepy village of Morton Harewood. When she arrives, she finds her aunt is missing and a surprise gift from an old friend is waiting to be opened. Sarah, Canine and her aunt's ward Brendan are swiftly caught up in the affairs of a mysterious cult who practice the black arts and are preparing to make a human sacrifice. 
this is a one-off story written by Terence Dudley, who'd been a, uh, a producer and director on shows like Doomwatch and Survivors through the 70s. He directed a little of Doctor Who before, and he'd go on to write some more stories afterwards, but this was written by him, directed by John Black, produced by John Nathan Turner, who was still the, the, very much the firebrand new producer at the BBC at that point, bringing along Peter Howell who was uh, providing the music for this story. He just updated the Doctor Who theme itself, hadn't he, so brilliantly for this one-off story. Uh, gentlemen, it saddens me, as a, as a lover of canine all my life, it really saddens me that this unique slice of Doctor Who, both in, in story and its place in the history, is often dismissed, usually before people have finished watching the opening credits. Uh, but I think anybody who will give it the time, give it that 50 minutes, will be really surprised by a confident and flavoursome production in its own right. It was tremendously exciting for me at the time. I was six or seven. I was mourning the loss of my favourite character from my very favourite show, JT. But we're, we're now approaching, well, we're, be we're now beginning its 40th anniversary year. Can you believe this episode is 40 years old now? I, no, and thank you for bringing that home because I hadn't thought about that at all and will immediately dismiss it from my head. I mean, it's, it's a shame really that, um, you know, what you were saying there in the opening is if people um, can't get past the opening credits because the, the brilliant thing about Canine and Company is when you watch it, it is what I would call a wholesome piece of British television from a then wholesome BBC and it represents the, a real crop of talent um, that was going on in the corporation at the time and you know it, it's it's made its way to one of my essential viewings every christmas mm. because it is a christmas special it's the first christmas special we we got for doctor who although it's not doctor who it's the first spin-off we ever got yeah. it sets up what would happen okay 40 years later <laughs> you know <laughs> it really does set it up and from a one-off point of view it, it was amazing um and it was exciting at the time and it's a shame that if, if people aren't going to get past the opening titles, they're missing out on a, on a, on a proper BBC drama. I think, yeah, I mean, what, what you mentioned there, JT, is it cannot be um, overestimated, which is this idea that, as you say, it was the first Christmas special, long before the Christmas invasion, and it was the first spin-off. You know, nowadays we're used to Sarah Jane Adventures, we're used to Torchwood, we're used to those spin-offs, and it's, it's just part of the... You, you, it doesn't mean anything to you. You're not phased by it. But back then, the thought of a Doctor Who spin-off was literally the most exciting thing in the world, and it was unprecedented. <laughs> it was unthought. No television show really had spin-offs in those days. So all credit well, to apart from Happy Days. Apart <laughs> from Happy Days, we had about six. Yeah, yeah, and that was yeah. American as well. I mean, I can only think Correct. about Apple in Britain. I can think of Porridge spinning it off into whatever it was called. <laughs> you know, the going straight. Yeah, seriously yeah, yeah. did. The live birds, I think, had a slight, a slight sequel, but it didn't really happen at all. Um, didn't happen a great deal. When this was announced, I read it through Doctor Who Monthly. I couldn't get over the fact, and that's when I realised what the term spin-off actually meant. This is coming at a very special time as well, because we've got to remember, for those people that weren't around as well, this was coming on the back of the five faces of Doctor Who, a very important year for, for Doctor Who. Tom Baker had just relinquished the role. Peter Davison hadn't been seen yet. He was seen a week after Canine and Company was, was broadcast. It's that close. Um, I forget it was that close. It was very close. We had the five faces of Doctor Who broadcast in the November. Then we had Christmas, and as kids, that was a big thing. Then in between Christmas and New Year, 
because uh, Canine uh, Company was first broadcast on the 28th of December in 1981. You had Canine Company um, and Castrovalve episode one. I mean, what a time to be a, a Doctor Who fan, a young Doctor Who fan as well, because you were just like, oh my goodness, what's happening? There was a real sense of newness and freshness emanating from this. You're right that, that Christmas was such an important part of the Canine and Company story. I mean, I nobody can see it, but today I am wearing my Christmas jumper. I've got my Christmas <laughs> mug because to <laughs> me, Canine and Company absolutely is Christmas. I could certainly never watch Canine and Company at any other time of the year, but that's because it is so intrinsically Christmas. Uh, and really? as somebody who loves Christmas, it, yeah. as, as JT, I agree with you. I watch it every Christmas without fail. It's part of my Christmas tradition. It's interesting because because I mean that you know that title sequence. I, I think we can all agree. Let's be honest. And the theme music. <laughs> it's a miss. Step. They messed oh. up with the title scenes and the and the and the theme music, but look, you, you know, you have to cut it slack because they were doing something entirely new. They were making up this concept of a spin-off uh, on, on the hoof, as it were. Um, they were they were just going with it. They were they were gambling along. They didn't really J and T, as you say, had barely been in the in the role for a year at this point. So so they were learning as they went. And and whilst you can now see that it was a bit of a of a misstep. The, the meaning behind it was good. I mean, for anybody that doesn't know this, that the, the JNT's idea with the title sequence was he wanted the British version of Hearts to Heart. <laughs> uh, you know, the super high uh, budget um, American show <laughs> with Stephanie Powers in. Um, and that's what, and that's the look they're going for. And when you look at it in that context, you realize you could see what they were trying to do. They were never going to achieve it. You're right. He wanted that sort of heart-to-heart glossy type thing, but I don't think anybody around him understood what he meant. I know exactly where he was going with that, yeah, because yeah. all those clips of Sarah Jane, there's lots of clips, aren't there, of Liz Slade and looking incredible, sort mm. of kind of soft power dressing, really, and, la- and sort of laying across this car and looking <laughs> looking as if, she was, as if she was looking for something in the middle distance a lot. And lots of shots of her doing that in different locations. Yeah. But what you, what you usually get with shows like that, this is whether they're based in, in the States or whatever, and you get this sometimes now on the very few shows that do have uh, title sequences, is they do that for a pilot episode, and then, because they've obviously a pilot's a pilot, they've only got one episode made. Yeah. So yeah. as the show gets on, and maybe it would get commissioned for a first series, they would get, say, 10 recorded, and they would intercut elements from those 10 episodes back into that title sequence to That's sort of, exactly not to it. not to pan it out, but to give it that visual kick, a visual flavour of what to expect over the entire first season. And I think that's what he's trying to do, Simon. I think he Correct. wanted to capture yeah, people yeah. like that. You can, you can imagine, had they gone for the for the production on the first season, which is what they intended to do, yes, that oh, title okay. sequence would have become a really fast-paced action sequence using yeah. true Brit sequences from, the, from that first series, and that's what would have happened. And again, for anybody that doesn't know, this was absolutely JNT's intention. He wanted this to go to series. So much as JNT mm. didn't like K9 within the, the Doc 2 show itself, and he kicked K9 out quite graphically. Mm. Um, quite he, quickly as well. Yeah, absolutely. All credit to him. He then absolutely picked up the reins, realised that, 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 that K9 was a hugely successful character, and, and petitioned the BBC quite vociferously to get them to take it to series. It was only because the upper echelons of the BBC didn't buy it that it yep. didn't go to series. Bill Cotton okay. commissioned it, of course, and then Bill Cotton, Bill Cotton was replaced by uh, Alan Hart, who said That's no. Right. 
absolutely one of his first things was to say, under no circumstances that dog getting a show. <laughs> and of course, the tragedy of all of it is it got really good viewing figures, considering it was on BBC Two. Let's not forget this was BBC Two, and it got 8.4 million. Oh, I do apologise. No, I'm looking at it. It was BBC One. 8.4 million viewers. Well, that's yep. a heck of that's that's a decent return. And let's not also forget within that. The Winter Hill transmitter in Bolton went down at five o'clock that day, yep. um, which basically took out the whole of the northwest of England, a lot of southern Scotland. Yep. So a huge chunk of, of the UK, in, England and Scotland, never got to see it on its first transmission. So to get 8.8.5 million viewers with one transmitter down and a huge chunk of the UK gone, it was a rating success Absolutely. and it should have gone to zero. Isn't that more than the Five Doctors got? <laughs> yes, yes. It was more than series 18 got. It was yes. more than the Five Doctors got, which got 7.7, 7, uh, or around about that. And K9 got more than that. But I remember that evening very, very well because my family were, were we were we were in the northwest at the time, um, and I was absolutely hyped. I was so excited about this thing. I wouldn't let anybody change the channel from BBC One. Um, <laughs> I was sitting there, and I remember the screen going blank. And I remember the scream for my dad, um, just going, what's going on? And of course, my dad um, <laughs> looked very technical by shifting the telly and doing things around the back. And I yeah. know he was banging the wrong. television, basically. That's what we used to yeah, do, bang the telly. I remember him going next door after about 10 minutes or so. He came back saying everybody's televisions are off. And that's when we knew something was going on. It, it was off for a couple of hours as far as I know. So, you know, I missed it. But that's one of the reasons that it generated a repeat the year after. And the repeat itself got around about 2.1, 2.2 million. And you can actually sort of say, right, had, you're absolutely right, if you, if you could add the Northwest, the South of Scotland, that sort of stuff, everywhere that went out, you would have had maybe closer to 10 million people watching at 5.45 that I night. I think you would have got easily 10 million, JT, easily. And so mm. that's what's just so frustrating that it didn't go to series. But one it's of the reasons that, that was given by the, by the sort of, uh, as JT says, Alan Hart, who was now the new BBC One controller, one of the reasons that was given by him, and I do kind of buy this, is that was the format of the series too limited? For anybody that hasn't seen K9 and Company, poor show on you if you haven't seen Canine and Company. <laughs> Give yourselves a treat and go watch it, but wait until next Christmas. Because um, <laughs> you've got to watch it at Christmas. But one of the reasons that was given is that there was the format going to be wide enough, that, that the idea had been to, to, to sort of focus on what had been covered in Canine and Company, which is Sarah and Canine tracking down sort of uh, 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 kind of supernatural stuff in, Co in the Cotswolds area, um, you know, demonology, all that kind of folkloric sort of stuff. They had a mind really? to pretty much stay in that lane then, because that's only one prong of Doctor Who storytelling, that, isn't it? That was that was the kind of initial thoughts for for the series of K9 and Company. And I don't think there was a worry necessarily that there wasn't enough material within the, this idea of the supernatural, because so many series have proven that actually there is. I think yeah. the fear was that the, the pairing of K9 and Sarah themselves was a difficult one. As you can see from, from K9 and Company, it's difficult. K9 is the kind of character, he doesn't get around very fast. It's difficult for him. How, how do you get over this issue that Sarah is, is, is going around solving these mysteries and constantly trying to keep this tin dog secret or do they just blow it open and, and, and bring K9 right to, into the fore yeah. but then you've got this whole difficult question about everybody's going to want to know what this metal dog is. I see the difficulties with taking it to series is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. to us 
let's not uh, dub faint praise. 40 years ago, cane iron looked like cutting-edge technology. You, if you saw something like cane iron rolling down the street... Well, let's be honest, 40 years ago, K9 was cutting edge technology in a sense, because they had to keep refurbishing them and rebuilding them and keeping it up and, you know, spending a fortune on, on, on the actual model, the actual prop. Um, but, you know, you knew there was no little person in that dog. You knew that was an actual robot. Yeah, and I think that's why I met so many of us fell in love with him, because he, he was a character to himself. He was one of the longest running assistants to appear in Doctor Who, but he was also his own element. There was nobody in it, not like R2-D2, not like that twinky thing. Do you think that some of the uh, problems with the with the robot dog, I won't say the prop, I can't think of him like that, but with the robot <laughs> dog, some of those little problems, the way he would waggle a little bit from side to side, the people handling him, the people working in the effects department at the time, and certainly the controller, the incoming controller of BBC One, for example, people such as that thought, oh God, it looks a bit naff. But to us, that added to part of the character, I think, Simon, the fact that he would wobble his little head. Oh, 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 without a doubt. That is, that, I think that is part of K9's uh, appeal. I mean, we've talked about this on, on the podcast and videos before, about the genius of the design on the part of Tony Harding, and it is. And so I think absolutely. But, but I think the genius with K9 and company, as you as you alluded to back earlier, is is the pairing with Sarah Jane Smith, mm -hmm. by far the most popular mm -hmm. companion in the series up until that point. And let's not forget that originally this show was going to be called A Girl's Best Friend. The, the entire show? Yeah. Didn't know that. And it was only the upper echelons of the BBC that insisted on putting the K9 name in there. Now, I honestly think, as much as I adore K9, and you know how much I do, I think the star of the show undoubtedly is Elizabeth yeah. Sladen, uh, because by necessity, this is nothing against K9, it's nothing against John Leeson, by necessity, she had to lead the action because of the limitations of the of the of K9 as a as a prop. And so I think the mistake actually was calling the show K9 and Company. That I think that actually would have been better potentially yeah. calling it the Sarah Jane Adventures, for example, to take a plug a, a title from yeah. the air. And I think had you gone down the had the had the series um, sort of pitched to go down the route that Elizabeth Slade, Sarah Jane Smith was the star of the show. K9 was that kind of character, very similar to Mr. Smith becomes in uh, the Sarah Jane Adventures. So he, so K9 is absolutely there in his integral, but you keep him, for example, in the attic, in inverted commas, as they do with Mr. Smith in the, in the Sarah Jane Adventures. I can see the show working. You know, let's be honest, we can all see Sarah Jane Smith, played by Liz Sladen, going around the Cotswolds as a kind of an investigative journalist yeah. slash sleuth, solving all of these weird folkloric stories. It would have been a brilliant series. I think it would have been. I, I, um, I do get what you're saying, but I understand why um, Bill Cotton and the other, his team actually turned around and said to John Nathan Turner, no, we want K9 in the title. Because we have to remember, when it was leaked to the press that K9 was leaving Doctor Who, there was an uproar in Britain. There was an absolute uproar. I was on one of the people of... making the uproar. I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, a load of us were in tears. Uh, a lot of um, uh, letters were sent to the BBC. A lot of letters were sent to Doctor Who <laughs> Monthly. It was on the front page of practically every paper going in the United yeah, Kingdom. And, I, and that's really where, where John went. Oh, hello. And uh, John Nathan Turner being John Nathan Turner, he he obviously saw the marketing element there. So, oh, there's an audience for this thing. So what you're saying is there was explicitly the plan 
the whole creative process that put K and I and company on screen was a direct result of the outcry from the viewing that's public, rather than that, rather than what he'd always got in mind to do yeah. before he announced the departure. Well, we had you had to look at. I mean, one of the beautiful things about K and and company was the elements of chance that came together to produce this one-off lovely episode. Because K nine K nine was leaving Doctor Who, brew our over that. John saw an opportunity, suggested the fact that there could be a one-off spin-off here. Uh, Bill Cotton loved that idea because, you know, he loved anything that was creative and artistic. And he was very supportive to his to his teams and his artists and everybody around him, as the BBC was in those days because of his attitude. Also, at that point, John had been um, in communication with Liz Sladen for quite a while to bring her back into Doctor Who. I know Graham Williams had approached her previously as well, but John more so because Tom Baker was leaving after seven years. He wanted a familiar face for um, younger viewers especially to transition between Tom Baker and Peter Davison. And Liz, of course, didn't want that. She had no interest in that at all. She turned him down on a couple of occasions. So when he went back to her to say, well, how about you be the doctor uh, and, and lead the show and K9 will be your companion, she, of course, turned around and said, let's talk. Let's develop this because it was taking Sarah forward. It was taking her... And as Liz often said, she didn't want to go back into Doctor Who just for that period, just to play something she'd played before. She would have been worked out of the show, either uh, story two or story three of Davison's time. So there was no point in her being there, really. But but John was so keen to it work It would have with been her. such a functional thing. Obviously, she'd have been remunerated for this, but it would, yeah. would maybe not have done her career the best of favours when, to be fair, you know, Liz Slayton had struggled to make a big mark. She'd had a lot of little parts on television, yeah. but hadn't had a big follow-up part since Sarah Jane Smith, so it could have done her more, well, more also, harm than good. you know, Liz often said... That one of the reasons she turned it down, there were, there were a number of good, solid reasons why she turned John's offer to go back into Doctor Who down. But she almost said, that, um, I'm paraphrasing, she always said, well, why would I do the same role as I did between Pertwee and Baker? Yes, exactly exactly the same. The timing yeah. would be the same. But I do understand why John went to both Liz and then allegedly he went to Lou Jameson sometime after, because he wanted that familiar face. In hindsight, that would have been a mistake, because... You were bringing in a new era. You had Adric Nissa, Tegan, and a new Doctor. Yeah. And that was their show then. That was moving forward. Simon, I watched K9 and Company just a couple of weeks ago from when we were recording this. Hooray. And I did do the big Christmas thing the way you two guys did. I don't quite associate it so so closely with Christmas as, as you do. <gasps> but I did watch it again, and I loved it. But one of the things that struck me the very most, and I think because since the last time I saw it and, and this time, we've lost Liz Sladen and other things have happened within Doctor Who itself. So watching this now and looking at what Liz Sladen does, it's a definite evolution from what she was doing when she was on Doctor Who before. And I think that because of the kind of actress that she is, not just the kind of character that Sarah Jane was, but because of the kind of actress that she is, she seems to be able to capture this childlike quality within Sarah Jane Smith. And she could do it when, when she first joined the show with, with Pertwee. She did it in this. Yeah. She did it in the Sarah Jane event. She kept on doing it. And, and here, there's, there's something about the way she plays it in this. It could have worked better. But she's a great identifying figure for, the, for children watching, even in the lead role, isn't she? She's stunning. I mean, what's interesting is that you look at, for example, when Billy Piper came back into the show to play Rose, she's gone on record as saying she struggles with that. She struggles to get to find Rose again. She struggled to get back yeah. into the role. You can see that she is, she's not necessarily struggling to find it, but it's not coming easy to her. 
Liz Sladen hits the ground running in, in K9 and Company, and she hasn't missed a beat. She just falls straight back into that character. Maybe because it, she played it for so long, and certainly a lot longer than Billy Piper played Rose, or or maybe she just she just she's always said Liz, Liz Sladen always used to say she absolutely was that character. She related to that character. She understood the character. Mm. She loved the character. That's that's the big thing. And you can see the love for her and the way she's developed from when we left her at the end of the Hand of Fear. The way she's a matured character. She's still the Sarah Jane that we know and love, but she's matured somewhat. Um, Liz Sladen herself sort of said she was unhappy with some of the choices that were made for the character in K9 and Company. But it was a pilot wasn't it? So that could yeah. have been refined. But certainly, but certainly at the script stage I know she wrestled some of that around and she insisted on some changes at script stage for things that she just felt were, were inappropriate for, for Sarah Jane to be doing. But as a result she she brings a very, very round, well A, a very rounded character to the screen and B, just an utterly adorable, lovable character to the screen. She she, she lights up, as I say, this is taking nothing against uh, away from K9, but she lights the screen when she's on in K9 and Company. And let's yeah, not forget, she is the lead in that show in the way that the Doctor is the lead in Doctor Who. She's the lead in that show. And yeah. boy, does she lead. She is a leading Absolutely. person in that and show. It- in between the last time we saw her in The Hand of Fear and this, JT, she's clearly, you know, taking things quite seriously. She's gone for martial arts lessons, hasn't she? <laughs> well, allegedly. <laughs> That's in one of the last scenes. Uh, people, yeah. as, as one people of the bits she was unhappy with that was. The yeah. thing about this was Liz knew Sarah. Um, I, I once heard her say that she had actually said to, to John Nathan Turner, this is where I see Sarah being. And they had to have a discussion about it because she brought a lot to the table. And that's absolutely fine because Sarah is and was her character. She mm. knew Sarah better than anybody else can um, before and, and since. So, you know, but the brilliant thing that Liz got hold of with the whole thing of K9 and company is she was the lead, as you say. And here she was reacting to this gift from the doctor. Now, that puts a brand new spin because there's that lovely line there where she's obviously gone about her business. She's become a successful journalist. She's very compassmentous, <laughs> as she says in the show, <laughs> um, you know, and um, she's she's highly regarded in her industry. She's traveling all around the world, probably causing trouble. And then she comes back for a very quiet Christmas period. And there, after so many years sitting in an attic in Croydon, is a gift from the one man who she has thought has forgotten her. And that really boosts Sarah's character, that boosts her confidence, that boosts her awareness, that boosts her love for the Doctor. She becomes more embroiled with the fact he's still alive, he's out there somewhere, the Daleks haven't got him, he's okay. You see that flicker in her eyes, don't you? You, see, you can see all that, that in Elizabeth Slade's performance. That scene is beautifully played, You're and right. only Liz Sladen could yeah. play that scene, because it harkens back to a line, of course, in The Hand of Fear, Oh Doctor, you didn't forget. That's because right, don't, the don't, in the Hand of Fear, don't forget me. That moment, as you say, as Liz Sladen says, "Oh, Doctor, you didn't forget." I mean, it, it still sends goosebumps down me now. It's it's yeah. it's a magical moment, and I have to be honest. I mean, you, you know, we've 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 sung the praises of Bob Baker and Dave Martin many times on this show, and I still think it's an absolute tragedy that this that, that, that they didn't go back. That Jane didn't go back to to Dave and Bob and ask them to write this. It was a mistake, and mm-hmm. and, and John Nathan Turner admitted it. You know, he cocked up. It was a mistake. They should have done 
And I would have loved to have seen Bob and Dave's uh, script for K9 and Company uh, and their ideas, what they would have come up with. But I have to be honest, I, uh, Terence Dudley's script, I think he's really good. It, it, it's a damn good 50 minute script. It rollocks along. It's got some it's got some mystery in there. It's got some yeah. some the, the, some of the direction. John Black's direction, bless it, just just messes up. Unfortunately, certainly with the conclusion, with the with the finale, with the big reveal of who the baddies are, and you're actually sitting there saying, "Sorry, sorry, so who are the baddies?" Because you can't tell from the camera angles. Can't you see them properly, can tell. you? Yeah, you can't tell who the baddies are. So there's some missteps with direction, but 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 as a script, I, I just think it's a it's a cracking script, and it captures that Christmassy essence. Is it because it's got a touch of the Midsummer Murders about it? What we now associate so. with shows like Midsummer Murders. I think so. Well, I, I mean that, that you know those opening shots in Morton Harwood when when you see that when you see the the, 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 the house for the first time as lists as, as Sarah pulls up in the car. It, it it's undeniably Christmassy. You can't get away from it. The other element, the other elements as well from from the style of the show is you can tell it's Doctor Who, but it isn't Doctor Who. It has actually moved that element on. It's a different crew working on the show as well, uh, um, and, and there's that feel to it. So it's familiar, and yet it's it's a change. But that was part of the excitement of it as well. We said this is now Sarah's life. This is where she is, and of course we've got to remember as well the joy of seeing Elizabeth Sladen back on screen as Sarah Jane Smith was immense and it's beautifully done because you see Aunt Lavinia for the first time first with Juno Baker um, you see that whole sort of um, introduction first and Liz doesn't come into it a la Doctor yeah. <laughs> immediately and I love that bit it's that build up where you're just sitting there saying when's she getting there and then they make you wait a little bit longer for K9 when, yeah, well yeah they keep you waiting for that money shot don't they but oh, with, yeah. with, uh, with Sarah Jane how you described her is perfect she is more seasoned and yet she still sparkles she's still very 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 youthful and yet you can see that she's seen a great deal that she's been able to join the dots in her life and, and, and progress to the point where she can take more on well physically if you want to look at the old kung fu but yeah. mentally and emotionally it, it is interesting that you say that because you know Looking back at it, as I have done every Christmas for the last few years since it was available on, on VHS and then DVD, you know, you can actually see Sarah, Sarah Jane in, in that bit. She is a bit, I mean, Juno Baker says she's being prickly. And she absolutely is. She's being prickly because, you know, suddenly she gets back to Morton Harwood. Now, any normal person, when they've been told, well, your aunt had to go off um, earlier to do this thing she's got to do, and it's in the paper and all this, Sarah automatically thinks something's going wrong and something's afoot because she hasn't had a phone call or anything like that. And I think, hang on a minute, she's at that point now where maybe she's slightly suspicious of everything because of her experiences. I, it's it's an interesting point, I think, I look at in Sarah there, because any one of us would say, oh, oh, where's my aunt? Oh, she had to go off to this conference first. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> it's a reading of the character and of that situation that I hadn't noticed. But again, I, th I think you're, I think you're absolutely right, and I think some of that must be in the room. You were talking about a minute ago, signed about Terence Dudley's script, and I, I agree with you completely. I think it's you could look at it as being sort of pretty uh, standard who done it. I won't even say run around, run around. It was more of a walk around, a, a standard story, a standard <laughs> episode. But it leaves people room to do stuff like that, to do the things that wouldn't have been in the script, to do the things that would be instinctual, yeah. and to do the things that could maybe be picked up a little bit later on. I, I want to talk about jo look, uh, looking at John Black for a moment, the director. I think what I what I had forgot, I, I always forget that John Black did this, and and he'd done The Keeper of Trakan the year mm. before on Doctor Who, hadn't he? And I see the same, the same. 
quality here, uh, the texture and the kind of things that people are wearing. It's got yes, that you're, about you're, you're, it. You're right. I mean, we, we, we should take a moment to talk about the, gen the, the overall production design of it because I think it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Sets, particularly yeah. the set of Morton Harwood. The staircase. It's just absolutely magnificent. It's beautiful. It's good, as good as anything that you would see in, for example, Midsummer Murders, to take your, your, your uh, mention earlier on, Dan. Um, I, I, the sets are great. The, 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 the costumes generally are great. I've got to take a moment to talk about Sarah's... Um, Tweed ensemble. <laughs> one of the most utterly divine costumes I have ever seen in any form with, of doctor. With that little aeroplane on her collar? That's so the doctor. That I is. love, I, I just, you know, this has got, really, this is sounding extremely trite, but I adore that costume of, of, of Liz Sladen as well, because it's the way she's got, she's got the, the, the blouse, she's then got the hacking jacket, there's then a separate bit that goes on the top of that, there's then <laughs> a cloak that goes on the top of that. Liz wasn't fond of that particular outfit, but I I actually love it because it says to me here's sarah in the country winding down she's got a lovely silhouette that john wanted correct and it certainly certainly um suited the sort of a, a, a action sort of thing that was coming because i reckon i reckon that, that had it gone to series it would have been more agatha christie than doctor who well this is my observation about it that they we get a lot of costume changes for one character in this episode and i think that is part of the nature of a pilot everything about this was a pilot i think it wasn't just a pilot as to see how the viewers responded i think it creatively it's a pilot as well we'll try with this look we'll try with that look. oh certainly we'll uh, yeah. What's interesting is that is that, that tweed outfit that she wears through uh, probably about half of it um, is just a very, very doctorish outfit. Yeah. I don't yeah. know whether it was a deliberate thing on their part, but it is very, very doctorish. Yet again, Sarah, as the, as the lead, as the star of this show, it, it leaves you no doubt at all, this is the character you should be watching. It, and it also, can't be any coincidence that that's the outfit that she wears in the publicity pictures, can it, JT? You know, it, well, well, it is. I mean, all, all the, the pictures of the time are, are in that outfit. But it was actually, we've got to remember, it was very 80s. Suddenly, in the early 80s, women were wearing suits. They were wearing ties. They were wearing shirts. And there was Sarah leading that, as Sarah Jane Smith would do because of her character then. And I, I think the, the, the whole thing about Sarah's fashion, I mean, when you look at what she turns up with in a couple of years later, the five doctors, I mean. Oh. <laughs> she looks like somebody who's just been, been caught on her way back from Iceland in that, doesn't she? It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not quite the same. Do we, do we know what happens to that tweed outfit from Canine and Company? If anybody out there knows where it is, I'm praying to goodness it actually is still in existence. I'd yeah. love to I mean, see it. I mean, we have we can't underestimate the importance of. Uh, I mean, none of them knew. I mean, yes, we we know that JNT always said to his dying day. He always said, "No, this was a one-off." But you know that in his mind, he was going, "I want a series out of this. I want to be a producer that's producing two <laughs> series at the same time, based around me." You know, he wants. Of course, to he did. I'm sure he was gutted that he didn't get that. But it was canine and company that set the precedent from what was to happen so sarah turns up with canine in the five doctors a couple of years later and then that so many years later and i don't want to admit how many years later it was also set the precedent. <laughs> I mean, you, you mentioned the sarah jane adventures there she is with him again the continuity was then established you know sarah and canine it as well changes he, her destiny doesn't it not just in that respect but in who the character is well to. eventually of course it's canine that will eventually lead them back together, the Doctor and Sarah back together. Um, and that, 
may have also happened back in the day had they gone to another state. You don't know. I mean, John was at a field day with continuity and <laughs> how many guest stars and how many leading people he would have got into a particular... Can you imagine the names he would have lined oh. up? The guest, the guest stars of the series would have been would have been like nothing you can imagine. It <laughs> would have been glitzy, then. It wouldn't have been necessarily a kids' drama because your lead would have been would have been. But, I, but I mean, I agree with you, and I don't feel that Canine and Company is really a kids' drama. It's it's very adult. Yeah. challenges very adult themes. Always talk about Christmas. I think okay, Christmas has been and gone now. But listen to this. Here's a quick trip back in time for a bit of the flavour of uh, Canine and Company back in 1980. <laughs> Christmas on BBC One. Tonight, Elizabeth Slayton stars in K9 and Company. K9! Well, what do you think it does? Well, we could try asking it. Shump. We're taking it for a walk next. <laughs> hey! Mistress, don't muck about. It wasn't me. I spoke, Mistress. What? I am K9 Mark Three. Mysterious occurrences at Morton Harwood and suspicious circumstances cause concern for K-9 and his new friends. A dog! A dog belching fire! It got Peter! It got my son! I swear! I swear by Arianrod! Bizarre happenings in K-9 and Company, tonight at 5.45 on BBC One. Fantastic Aww. stuff! Fantastic stuff! I can I can feel my mother's old frock wallpaper when I think of, when I think back to those times and this sort of electric fire that she used to have that really? sat next to the TV. The cast of Canine and Company, everybody, it was filled out with uh, proper sort of uh, how can I put this full voiced British thesps, wasn't it? Some some uh, trusted hands and familiar faces from all sorts of other shows. Looking down the list here, we've got Bill Fraser. That's Bill Pollock. He'd been in Doctor Who the previous year. Colin Jevons was there as George Tracy, with Nigel Gregory as Vince Wilson. Sean Chapman was Peter Tracy. Linda Poland was Juno Baker. Fantastic name for a character, Juno Baker. I've always loved that. Neville Barber, pure Christie. Neville Barber was Howard Baker, with John Quarmby as Henry Tobias, and Gillian Martell as Lily Gregson. Mm. These all sound like made-up actors' names from Toast of London. And then we had Mary Wimbush as Aunt Lavinia, who gets a lovely scene towards the end, but wow, she's got such presence there. All those actors, they're feasting on this material. They know what to do from the get-go, and yet they don't, somehow, Simon, they don't send it up, do they? The one character that sort of stayed with people that stayed with the fans over all the decades and copped a little bit of flack, it has to be said. It's Ian Sears as, the, as Brendan, isn't it? Oh, Art Lavinia's war. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, gosh, I have to be honest, I remember sitting there watching it in 1981 and, and even as a, as a, how old was I then, 11, as an 11-year-old, I remember not being yeah. blown away by Ian Sears' uh, acting ability. I have to be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, what are you trying to say? But, but but bless him! What 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 a what an awful part to be given! I think he definitely has by far the hardest parts to play in in the whole thing. Um, and in all honesty, he does as good as anybody would have done. He's very he's very very game, isn't he, JT? Very game. He'll throw himself what? into it. Do you know what? I I think it's terribly unfair that Ian has had flack from certain fan centres, and it's a tradition. 
in science fiction to find the youngest male lead and slag him off. Matthew got it. That chap from Star Trek got it. What's his name? Will Wheaton, he got yeah, it. Yeah. You know, um, I think it's a tradition to do that. And part of me thinks it's just supreme jealousy that it's not you in the oh, show. I think that's what it is. In fact, I'm positive that's what it is. Yeah, but I, I think, as well, I, I mean, I just remember being in awe of this show and just watching it and, and just taking in and enjoying every single second of this, thinking, oh, my God, this is different. And the doctor's not going to be in this. And there's Sarah. Oh, and there's K-9. And there's Juno Baker. She's obviously the baddie. Oh, no, hang on a minute. It's Lily Gregson. <laughs> she's looking a bit old. But, oh, but she's giving Sarah a cup of tea, so she's all right. And it was that element there. And from when Brendan came into it, I, I, I didn't mind him at all. I thought, well, this yeah. is obviously Sarah's companion. I kind of feel I kind of feel that as I say his character is the is the least well served by the script. I've just praised Terence Dudley's script and I and I do think it's a cracking script but unfortunately I think Brendan fares the worst with regards to dialogue. Yeah, you <laughs> have to have someone Simon though to actually sacrifice, didn't you? And I love the fact <laughs> that he just plays the traditional damsel in distress. <laughs> and, and of course, what's re and what, what, what's interesting with Brendan's character and the, and the sacrifice that you mentioned there, JT, and this goes to show how adult that, and serious they were actually taking the show, was at script stage, um, Brendan's character would have been completely naked as he was led to sacrifice. And it was only, again, I think the upper echelons kind of said, you're going to have to put a, something on him, but seriously, I I'm not thought you. He was going to be naked. Yeah, I yeah. thought you were going to say that they were going to actually kill him at the end then, and we were going to get somebody else different from the main... Oh, no, she was from the main save him, but there was... Um, I mean, I, I think I've also heard somewhere on the circuit in the past as well that what they actually put him in was the best of, of, of bad ideas, because, yes, I, I, he, was put, he, wasn't, he was supposed to be naked, and I'm sure poor Ian Sears would not have liked that at all. <laughs> but then they said to him, put him in a nappy-type thing, which... <laughs> Which I think was never have lived that down. Um, but, Martin Coons, he knows that. But yeah, but even the thing they actually put Ian into eventually is a is a little bit um, risque, isn't it? And I'm God knows where they got that from. But really, I mean, they should have just put him in a sack. And again, and again, yeah. you just feel so yeah. sorry for him because that night, you, you know, the, the legend has it that that night shoot uh, in the ruins with the sacrifice was yeah. absolutely freezing, and he's wearing and next to nothing. Troops on. Absolutely, and there's that wonderful story with all of the with all of the acolytes of Hecate going round the, the, yeah. the sacrificial stone, chanting um, Hecate, 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 and apparently by four o'clock in the morning, all the extras were actually chanting Hecate, Hecate, because they were so cheesed off that they were freezing their bits off. Absolutely, in this and I don't think that was down to any fault with K9 either. I think it was just getting it all in the can just and getting it done. done. And if Ian is actually listening to this, great legs. I agree. <laughs> in between the repeat screening <laughs> of this in 82 and whenever it came out on VHS, was on VHS, which was around 1994-95, I didn't see this story at all. You know, it lived in my memory. The thing that stayed with me the very, very most was that chant. Even, even Simon's rendition of it gave me the chills, that Hegarty, Hegarty, Hegarty. Always stayed with me. You know, that was over a decade in between where I didn't set eyes on a minute but, of this but thing. But do you not find it still with you now? I mean, you're absolutely right. I remember watching some American thing back in the early 90s, which was about um, something to do with the occult or something like this. It was, a, it was a, a, one of those movie things they produced for television, you know? Yeah. And they were, they were praying, or they were, they were worshipping Hegarty, and all I could think of was that <laughs> chant. So for all that the script probably doesn't do, 
and all the things that you know just a, a matter of, of reality of the fact that this was a pilot it couldn't be all things to everybody and Ian Sears I'm sure he would have got much more lines in various episodes had the series gone for all the things it didn't do moments like that do really stay with you you know I was absolutely completely the target audience for this that seven year old who maybe who had to play up a little bit to watch it because it looked looked a little bit too scary but yeah the fact that it stayed with me for over a decade yeah I'm I think it's certainly brought more to Doctor Who than it ever took away as one of this this great failure that sometimes gets trotted out even now on clip shows for shows that were never going to work. I think this absolutely, definitely could have worked. Oh, if, if I see, if I see, put me in touch with the people who put that on. So I'd like a word with them because this yeah. was in no way a failure. I mean, it got it got eight over eight million viewers. I'm part of the country. You know what? You it. know what tabloids are like. They don't. I don't just mean tabloid journalists. I mean tabloid TV as well. They use shorthands for everything. If something, if something was big and they tried something, and particularly in Great Britain, you know, we do like to build people up and then knock them down. And they tried this and it didn't work. Ha ha ha. And that's never been something that I've subscribed no. to, or something I've always tried to resist. And and you do find that K9 and company does continue to make up it these is, shows. It is important to Doctor Who law. On so many platforms that we've only we've only we've have started to talk about the first ever spin-off. It brought two incredibly popular characters together for the first time on television. It set the scene for the characters thirty years later, um, you know, and where they would be. It has kept both of those characters alive, um, and and certainly through the wilderness years of Doctor Who, K Nine and Company was always tight. You know, Sarah and K Nine were together then. You know, uh, yeah, in, in comic he, strips, he in books. Up, he would, yeah, I mean, it, and, it's such a shame. And at the end of the day, you know, taking the Doctor Who connection away entirely, that's why we're here talking about it, because we love Doctor Who, but you take that away entirely, and actually, it's still a, a completely decent piece of BBC drama, that's BBC festive okay. drama, that you could have put that on with no Doctor Who connection whatsoever, and just had an investigative journalist trying to get to the roots of this 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 witch cult and it would have been a perfectly decent christmas eve show for BBC absolutely One any other time so you know it's easy it's weird that you said that because when i was re-watching it last week um i actually thought that i thought wouldn't this be great if the bbc and they won't but wouldn't have, if the bbc <laughs> had stuck this on christmas eve or a couple of days before i would have loved to have seen the response for viewers today watching it at five o'clock in the afternoon, um, just at Christmas, I think it'd be very interesting to see that because I reckon people would have got there's K9. Oh, well, what's that? I think it's perfect. I think it's perfect tea time Christmas Eve fair, and I think actually it, it was robbed somewhat by being buried on the twenty eighth of December for its first transmission. Um, I, I think it, it could so easily be on over the Christmas weekend, the Christmas weekend itself. In my head, I'd convinced myself it was on it was on Christmas Eve or Boxing Day. Certainly, a lot. It was that was the repeat. Dan, the Dan the following year was on Christmas Eve. That could that could be could be why. And one of the reasons they gave it the repeat, of course, was because half the country didn't see it and there was no playback. You know, there was you couldn't go to an iPlayer, you couldn't go to a video. Mm -hmm. There was no DVD release, so you know, a lot of the people that was um, that couldn't see it because the Winter Hill transmitter went down had to wait an entire year. And I think that's why, you know, you can say, well, 2.1, 2.2 million who tuned in for the repeat could possibly have been tagged on for the first year. So you could have got closer to 10 million for that first year. You know, talking about this with, with you guys and in context and hearing you, you, you both know a lot more about this episode than I do. And so putting it into context like that, it's made me look at things slightly differently, reflect on my own responses. For example, Simon, you were talking about John Black's direction. 
and particularly the conclusion there. I'm going to confide something to you now. I watch K9 and Company only every three or four years, and in the time in between, I always forget who has done what. Who are actually behind this plot? I always forget in between, and I think that's why I always enjoy it, because it always surprises me. Now, I thought that it was just me not being brilliant with detective. I don't watch detective stuff. I, I, things like that. You know, I'm not great at picking up on clues and things like that. So I thought it was probably an area in which I'm lacking. But it turns out, from what you've said, it was just not directed very, very well. But I view this as a positive, you see, because it does mean that every time I see it, I am always surprised. And it never, it's, it never sinks into the mundane and the predictable based on that. I always enjoy it. The, the coziness... And Jeopardy, it's always balanced right in the middle. I'm in my 40s now. I was I was less than 10 years old when I first saw this. And it still has a power. The thing that I was disappointed about then is also the thing I'm still disappointed about now. It's also the thing that marks it out as being not Doctor Who. Because if, if it, this was Doctor Who, we would have seen at some point the true manifestation of Hecate. We never see anything of that, do we? We never see like a Zal or anything sort of spirit its way into existence like that. And even now I think that's a shame. I, I can see why they didn't do it, but I think it's a shame, JT. Well, well yeah, but part of it was it had to be different. And mm. what's good about that, what you just said there, is the fact that, you know, this is human. These are human beings. Yeah. The whole yeah, point of this story thing. is the fact that these are people in the in 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 the in the English countryside of yesteryear, who and, and, and you know, and it still goes on to a certain extent in certain elements today, where people believe traditions, especially yeah. in in farming, especially in <laughs> in yeah. rural. I'm not saying all of it, but there are elements where tradition has been passed down, and that's one of the things that I don't miss in this episode of the Cayman Company because this was a good old fashioned in a sense take the mask off, Scooby-Doo style, back yeah. to villain. Uh, and it was all about the human element. I think that's where, you know, later on, when Russell obviously comes in, he builds the sci-fi element into it. I would I would expect, and I, I, I don't know, had they gone to a series, I would have expected a certain sort of um, Agatha Christie style, whodunit type thing going on, but maybe they would have got there eventually. But I think that's where K-9 and company actually works now, because the only off-world element you have is K-9. I have literally, till you have just said what you've said, Dan, I've never, ever even registered that there is actually nothing truly supernatural or sci-fi in there. It is human. I've never missed it. I've literally never missed it until you've just pointed it out to me. So it certainly never bothered me at all that, that as, a, as an 11-year-old that there was nothing sort of science fiction in there. Um, I just accepted it for, for what it was yeah. and that it was totally human and down to earth and that's what it was. And after what JT's just said, I've, I'll have to admit it now, I can never remember who the villain is in Scooby-Doo either. But that's, that, that's definitely just well, me. In Canon um, and Company, it was everybody, of course. <laughs> Except the Bakers. <laughs> Again, very, very Agatha Christie, very Orient Express. Another, another thing I do like, and I think it harkens back to those ambitions of being a bit like heart to heart, it's the final scene, that sort of cosy wrap-up that we get. They're all <laughs> sort of huddled around the fire. Now, if that had been heart to heart, or the four guy... They 
they'd have been in the hot tub or something but I don't think anybody really wanted to see that I'm happy with it as it, as it is all Christmas crackers and funny hats and canines singing we wish you a Merry Christmas who couldn't who couldn't fall for and, that and John and, Leeson and, does it beautifully doesn't he and, and, a, and a satin um, blouse for, for Liz Slayton that apparently cost about half the budget and then he gets used in one <laughs> scene <laughs> oh, <is that> right? <laughs> no you're right that, that final scene is just absolutely Christmas essence just squashed down into one <laughs> 90 second scene and it's beautiful beautiful <laughs> code. you know the whole thing about K9 and company it was it was wholesome then BBC entertainment playing the trailer earlier that for me is really special because that that shows the BBC back then how it was when they weren't yeah. afraid to show a bit of tinsel and a bit of glitter yeah. and make things really festive whereas now you get it all planned and it's all very corporate style um I, I believe but you know, back then they were they were quite um, happy to show things with bits of holly around it and well, have back, a lot of trailers on them. You know, well, well, back then, JT, uh, the BBC was was wearing its Auntie Beebe very proudly on its sleeve. I don't doubt it would hate to be called Auntie Beebe now, but back oh, then, okay. it very proud Auntie <laughs> And I think and I think you can see that literally running all the way through K9 and Company. You watch K9 and Company, and that was what the BBC did well—a wholesome, solid drama. That's where they excelled. Absolutely. And of course, they wouldn't have known necessarily with Canine and Company who was going to watch it because, you know, you, you would yeah. think that the Doctor Who fans were going to watch it. And hence, I reckon the time of 5.45 on a, on a particular December, that show could have been earlier. But, I, I, you know, I, I always believe that this point of Christmas between, you know, uh, Christmas and New Year is a sort of limbo period. Some of the times, you know, the best quality that, well, not so much these days, but you used to get some really fine films, some really fine productions to watch. So to have K9 in that element there is, is actually quite exciting, I think, because it was showcasing really just before New Year. And, and certainly I know I was really looking forward to it from Christmas Day onwards. Oh, my God, K9's next. <laughs> but it also tied in, as I said earlier, that the week after you got the new Doctor coming in. So there was a sort of planning element to it there. Also, as I, you know, I keep harking on about it, it got people watching, but we don't know necessarily who. It wouldn't have met, I mean, it could have been all fans. I think that from what you've just said, I think we all mentioned it earlier on, this precise moment in Doctor Who's history, it was almost like a perfect storm. From the five faces, the departure of this leading man, looking to the future, and an actual spin-off. Now, I remember at the time, it felt because this is the time where my fandom was just beginning, and it felt like I was getting on board with something that was a lot bigger than I ever realised. Mm. It's time for a quick break now, because uh, Type Forty, a Doctor Who podcast, is a Facebook production for the fabulous Fandom Podcast Network. But we'd be letting you down if we didn't fill your ears with talk of the other fabulous shows on that network. Here's a quick word about all of that, and we'll be back in a tick and a talk with more talk about K Nine. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to the Fandom Podcast Network and all of the other awesome shows we have to offer. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, our weekly pop culture news podcast. Blood of Kings, our Highlander podcast. Couch Potato Theater, our podcast celebrating our favorite movies. Time Warp. The Fandom Flashback Podcast, discussing a year in movies and our favorite pop culture topics. Enzo, the NFL Podcast. Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock Podcast. Union Federation, our Star Trek and Orville Podcast. Hair Metal, the 80s and early 90s Rock Metal Podcast. Type 40, our Doctor Who Podcast. 
Lethal Mullet, a 1980s and 90s action film podcast, What a Piece of Junk, a Star Wars podcast, and our newest show, Making Treks, a new Star Trek podcast with a deep dive into the final frontier with host Mark Newbold and Adam P. O'Brien. You can enjoy all of these great Fandom Podcast Network shows on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. Fandom Podcast Network is also on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also find us on Facebook under Fandom Podcast Network. You can also email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter under Fandom Podcast Network. Thank you for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalized you there, now let us clothe you too. Head over to tpublic.com, search for the Fandom Podcast Network, and you'll find a store full of the team colours for all those shows on t-shirts, hats, mugs, and a TARDIS full of other items. Treat yourself, treat your other selves, and it all goes to support the network continuing to fill your ears with 100% fabulous fandom goodness. Yeah, looking at the at the music, we've talked a little bit about the theme tune, and you know, as this conversation's gone on, I think what I've realised as well is that if the show had have gone the way that you talked about there, Simon, and the ambitions that they had for it, JT, I think that as the show would have developed, that theme tune would have probably suited it a little bit more. But uh, Peter Howell produced all the incidental music for this show, and he'd reinvented the entire sound of Doctor Who the previous year with the synthesizers and whatnot and he brings all that to Canine and Company here but sort of brings in a Celtic sound which again seems right for Christmas. This was so exciting as well wasn't just hearing a show like this it all sounded really fresh and really electronic. People use that as a cliche when it comes to the 80s I feel but it doesn't mean that it's not true does it JT? Oh no, absolutely. I mean, I mean that was the score of the of the time, and, and for those of us that were around, Doctor Who was reflecting very much what was going on in the in the in the, in the charts at this point. I, I refer to this whole thing in Britain as the Brideshead Revisited era, because that drama <laughs> had a massive impact on so yeah, many okay. people, and you know everybody was going around with big haircuts, floppy haircuts, pastel colours, floral prints. Um, listening to things like the Pet Shop Boys, Eurasia, yeah. <laughs> you know, Yazoo. So many things were going on. But Doctor Who, I mean, this is one of the things that John did. He just moved it on from Tom's last season onwards. And, of course, he did the same with K-9. He would, of course, he was going to go to some of the people's Dick Mills, the, the wonderful Dick Mills did all the sounds. And then, of course, the Radiophonic Workshop, who was there for him to use, of course he was going to bring them in. What you've just said about about, uh, about Briar Ted Revisited and all those dramas... Uh, Simon, do you remember all that time, uh, Chariots of Fire, that had just come out. Yeah. Matthew Waterhouse, when he'd gone into Doctor Who, he'd been in the show called To Serve Them All Our Days. Serve all that kind of days. drama was really popular. And Ian Sears, the Brendan character with his tweed jacket and his very sensible haircut, he belongs kind of to that world too, doesn't he? I, I think it's it's linked. You can see it just as JT describes. Oh, absolutely. It is a product of its time. K9 and Company is a product of its time. You know, anybody that watches it now for the first time, will undoubtedly think it looks somewhat dated 
But on the other hand, I actually think it's rather timeless. I don't think it's dated at all badly. Okay, that the pacing is slower, as you as you have joked quite fairly, Dan. It's um, it's a walk around rather than I, a run. I love it for that, though. I do love it. Absolutely. For that. So 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 the fact is, no, it doesn't stand up to today's modern modern sort of drama standards for, in that respect. But but in the other respect, because of the because of the direction they take it in and the style of production design um, and the scripting, I, I think to an extent it is somewhat timeless and, and actually has dated remarkably well. Given we are talking forty years later, certainly if you look at something like the Horns of Nymon, which wasn't that much before Canine and Company, that's dated badly. Canine and Company hasn't dated badly. Do you know, I think I absolutely agree, but I think that's where, and there will be certain people that won't really like this, but that's where the whole setting of Canine and Company works because it's a then modern day United Kingdom, you know, and, and the story is obviously set. She even says, she gives the date, it's 1981. So it does set it. I, I really think as well, it is timeless and it holds its place. Sometimes with the television that you get today it is so fast-paced there are so many mistakes in it whether it be continuity error or script errors or acting errors or or whatever because it's just bang 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 sometimes you just want to watch something that's going to unfurl gently and the best place to go for that is british television of yesteryear who actually look at plot who develop characters who bring you into something who who are able to um, say to you well look here's juno baker and isn't she very, hello, how are you? She's obviously the baddie. And here's Lily Grigson who's, oh, do you like a cup of tea, dear? Have a cup of tea. Oh, she's a nice friend to Sarah. And then twists it around. And that's the whole beautiful thing about television of yesteryear. Because it was all about character. It was about the plot. It wasn't about bang, bang. But, and also, Canine and Company is, is a real classic example of, of the BBC at the time in that everything was in-house. Um, this was what the BBC did, they made things. Let's not forget, we, we shouldn't forget, that K9 and Company was made literally just down the road from you and I, Dan, at Pebble Mill, Pebble Mill. BBC Pebble Mill <laughs> in Birmingham. I always forget that, I do. We, you know, we've got to remember this was made outside the environs of London of Television Centre. So this just goes to show again the quality of programmes being made by the provinces at that time. Nothing is made by the provinces really to speak of, certainly overall by the BBC now. They make stuff yeah. in Manchester. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's about it. They make stuff in Manchester. There's certainly no production really goes on anywhere Cardiff. else in the country. And Cardiff, so, and so K9, Cardiff, yeah, you're quite right. Yeah. But generally, all of the regions back in the day would have made stuff. Uh, and so it's, so it is this sort of time capsule in a way of what the BBC was back in the 80s. Oh, I totally agree. And I think that's, I think that's the effect I get when I watch it. Like you, when you watch those trailers that are on the, are included on the, on the Blu-ray and what have you of the BBC trailers at the time. Yes, of course, they, they may last 10 days and they're very, <laughs> very, but that's how they were. And it, and it brings that, that, as I say, the word wholesome. But the, you, the thing about Pebble Mill as well is that, you know, they were so proud of Canine and Company. They were so happy to have that. I, I seem to recall a lot of, there used to be a magazine show called Pebble Mill at One where you know the presenters would sit literally in the foyer of the BBC remember yeah. and they would they would interview guests and politicians from the it's actually the template that the one show is nicked today they would do that but they were so proud of it that K9 appeared to talk about this on Pebble Mill several times and i think he also appeared on their special show when the new year show or something like that i can't really remember it now because it was on late but i'm sure i've got it somewhere 
and he was on that talking about it. I'm sure it was for the repeat, actually. But I think that was the other thing about it as well. You know, it, had it gone further, I think they would have made the most of having a, a, a lead BBC drama. All of those clips have made it through to the DVD and Blu-ray release. You can find those tucked away in those box sets. You don't have to look too far. It's all there. It's, it's all beautiful stuff. And, yeah, you, you're right with that kind of television. John Leeson's in character as K-9. Yeah, I, I love all that stuff. And I'd forgotten, yeah, I mean, that was the template for, for The One Show. The One Show started originally. That was filmed in Birmingham at the mailbox, not that far from where Pebble Mill was. So it, it has that kind, of, that kind of legacy. Talking about K-9 himself... It was his name above the door, shall we say? Mm. What do you think this did? Just as a as a as a look back through the the time in between, it could have started off a whole series for K nine himself. Of course, eventually that did happen way 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 later somewhere else. But this could have started off a whole new series. As it happened, it sort of represented a bit of a last shout for K nine himself. After this point, he was relegated for twenty years to kind of cameos, wasn't he? It's a, a great shame. I don't think it relegated him in, in such because, of course, he was still alive for fans. We, we, you know, we never really went away. Well, they're all the alive for fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but it also did the same thing for Sarah. I mean, the two of them crop up in, in The Five Doctors. OK, K-9 has a cameo because uh, they couldn't actually get him into, you know, the script properly. And that's fine. But he's there. It establishes the fact that those two are still having wild and manic adventures wherever they happen to be, yeah. <laughs> which is brilliant. The popularity of both of them, both Sarah Jane and K-9, cemented the fact that, you know, when, when Russell certainly gets to that point and he wants to do a, a spin-off, where else would you go? That really cements the importance of K-9 and company all that time. And we did get the BHS coming out of that bit, which re- reinvented it again and brought it out to mind, you know. And as you say, that was the early 90s, I'm sure, that the, the, the video yeah, came out. 90s. Yeah, um, and that was the first time it had been seen by us as fans, because the BBC never repeated it after the first repeat, and on it goes, and on it goes, and, and we're, we're here now, 40 years later, talking about it. I mean, it's still there, so I don't think, I think it just, it kept the, the flame alive for anything coming back, and K-9's one of those characters that he's not going to be forgotten. He's one of the longest-serving companions in Doctor Who. He was the first character to be given a spin-off show, which then happened to bring Sarah Jane into it as well, but it was all based around K-9. Well, of course, um, and of course, the thing to remember is that K-9 is one of the most, if not the most, instantly recognisable of all Doctor Who companions. For all the successes of, of, of Rose Tyler, of, of, of Liz Lane, you name it, K-9 is still obviously the most recognisable to the general public. There, are, I, I think if you showed a photo of K-9 to most members of the general public, they'd know who he was. They'd roughly know, you know, even if they're not Doctor Who fans, they'd know where he was from, Doctor Who, that he's called K-9. And he talks with a silly voice. I think you'd assume that most people would know that. He's one of the great copyrights. If you look at any Doctor Who merchandise to this day, the TARDIS, the Daleks, and K-9. That's right. And and in many ways, he's loved by people who don't necessarily love Doctor Who. So, you you know, you don't have to love Doctor Who to love K-9. So there are people that I know that just love the idea of K-9, love the aesthetics of K-9, even though they don't like Doctor Who. K-9 was and is an icon. That flame is definitely still burning and he's still rolling around somewhere I'm sure I can't believe that we've seen the last of any of those different marks mm. of K9 past, present or future. That's probably a story we'll have to pick up at a later date. I've loved talking about this. The smile is on my face. The smile <laughs> is on your two faces too. But 
before we go, let's score this. Let's let's award this. How many doggy treats out of five would you give Canine and Company a girl's best friend, Simon? Oh, do you really, really need to ask me? I'm going to give it a million out of five. I, love, I love Canine and Company more them. more than you could more than you possibly imagine. It's uncountable for me. Yeah, have that one, Alan Hart. How about you, JT? What would you give this one out of five? I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure he's watching. Um, I would agree with Simon. I mean, out of five, five out of five. But you know, you, you know, it's it's just stellar. This this episode It's still magical. It's a Christmas treat. It's a, a show, as I said earlier, where things happened and things came together and something was produced because of elements that would never have really happened before. You know, it's just a magical, magical tale off the screen and on the screen. It's just stellar. Can I just drop in my, my one little remarkable factoid that I found this out only recently, a few months ago actually, and, and my jaw hit the floor. And that was to discover that Sean Chapman, who of course uh, plays Peter Tracy in Canine and Company, and for anybody that's trying to place Peter Tracy, he's the, he's the young, he's the guy that speaks like this, and he's got the black leather jacket on, oh, and yeah, the, yeah. He's, he's the wheel, you know, he's the, he's the bike, motorbike mechan- um, fan. And I found out recently that he plays Frank Marshall in Hellraiser, which I was gobsmacked <laughs> to discover. So, and, and to begin with, I thought, no, no, that's not right. You go and look at the Hellraiser, and this is, a, if you're of an age, certainly Hellraiser is up there as one of the great horror films, and Frank Marshall is one of the most terrifying zombie characters that you will ever see. Uh, and, and I was amazed to discover that little Sean Chapman from K9 and Company ended up in Hell, a star of Hellraiser. Do you know what, Simon? <sighs> You've inspired me there, because one of the things that has never really happened after all these years on the on the convention circuit, on the gig circuit, is the Canine and Company cast were never really approached. It was always Liz, and Liz has a lot to say about it, and John had a lot to say, John Neeson had a lot to say about it, but we've never really asked any of them to come along and talk about what they remember about it. Even yeah. the DVDs didn't really focus on that. And I don't know if many, you know, obviously a few of them are well. no longer with us, sadly. But there are certain ones that are still around, and it would be interesting to get them on. So if any of our friends who are doing conventions anytime <laughs> when we are allowed to do conventions, like, there's, a, there's an untapped market. Let's see what they thought yep. about K9 no. and Company. Let's, let's say this now. Let's offer the cast members of K9 and Company, come and talk to us. That could oh, be, wouldn't that be I don't think We wouldn't need our arm twisting too hard. <laughs> to, work, to come back and talk about Canine and Company on, all Sean, over Sean. again. After that bombshell, the Hellraiser bombshell, I'm just going to drop my bombshell if I give it four out of five. Thanks for joining us today, JT. You've been a very, very good boy. Who'd have thought that? <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to have you back on at some point at a later date, but for Thank now, you yeah, che- cheers again. That's the time rotor whirling away, calling time on another Type 40. We'll be back on the leash soon enough with another edition of Type 40, so look out for that wherever you've found this. The brand new Type 40 podcast feed hosted at type40.podbean.com, for example. By popular demand, we've got our very own feed. We're even easier to find, but you can search and find us also over on Apple Podcasts on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean or Spotify and don't forget over on YouTube the world's largest streaming platform. We're still on the Fandom Podcast Network's incredible master feed of course with all those other wonderful genre shows as ever get in touch through our social medias. 
Instagram and Twitter at Type 40 Doctor Who. Even email us, type 40 Doctor Who at gmail.com. And finally, if you're feeling especially brave and fancy some real time, extra dimensional chit chat, step into the Type 40 Facebook group. Simon, what are your own coordinates from Galactic Centre on social media? Only on Facebook, thank goodness, but you can come and find me there uh, and just look up uh, Doctor Who, the Hoonatics, and I am the admin on that, so come and say hello. And you can find me, I'm scattered across all of space and time, but mostly on Twitter and Instagram as the Spacebook, where I ramble away, posting about whatever catches my eye, imagination, or both in popular culture, inside and outside of the TARDIS. There's links to all of that in the show notes too. We always have the time if you have the space here on Type 40. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you again soon. A Doctor Who podcast is a Spacebook production for the Fandom Podcast Network with music by Problem Being.